Hi, I'm Eden. And I'm Nicole. Welcome to Roadside, Roadside Horror, Horror Show. So we're still in Vermont. Part two of Vermont. Loving it, living it, the yeah. Green Mountain State. I really want to go there now. I wish I was there right now. We can go. We should go. I like lots about Vermont, like we talked about last week. Ben and Jerry's. Ben and Jerry's is always good. And I always think of trees, like I said. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Lots of beautiful leaves. Green things. I don't know. Well, it's the Green Mountain State, so there should be at least something green. It's true. It's true. So I don't have any fun facts about Vermont. I don't have any for this week either. <laughs> Except that Vermont is fun. Sorry, Vermonsters. You guys are cool. Vermonsters. I like that. I guess I'll dive into my story for today. All right. I was pretty excited to find this this true crime story. Uh, our stop today is in Newberry, Vermont. Newberry is a town of about 2,200 people located at the Great Oxbow of the Connecticut River as it meanders between Vermont and New Hampshire. Apparently, the Connecticut River is very long. I never knew that. I, I would assume. Yeah, it runs a very, very long way down through New England. Uh, the town of Newberry includes seven smaller villages. That's really what makes up the town. Uh, those villages are Newberry, Center Newberry, West Newberry, South Newberry, Boltonville, Peach Four Corners, best name ever, and uh, Wells River. And what was the last one? Wells River. Wells River. Okay. Mm-hmm. For most of its history, Newberry has primarily been a place where people raise beef and cattle, sheep, things like that. And the production of wool and dairy goods is the primary source of income for most residents. Very nice. Yeah. Uh, today's tale actually does start on a dairy farm just south of Newberry. Okay. Do tell. On New Year's Eve in 1957, Orville Gibson rose well before dawn to start his chores on his dairy farm. At 4 a.m., he entered the large wooden barn in his property to begin the day's milking. At 6.30 a.m., his wife, Ava Lynn, wasn't able to locate him on the property, so she called the local state police office. Two troopers arrived around 8 a.m. and questioned Ava Lynn. They searched the barn and discovered Gibson's milking pail badly dented, and there were several scuffs and drag marks on the barn floor. Okay, at first I was just kind of like, not the milking pail, but then, you know, now there's actual stuff that leads to it possibly being a crime. Okay, because first it's just like, she woke up, she can't find her husband, maybe he's off doing chores, you know. No, not the busted milking pail. I know, right? The troopers follow the skid marks and drag marks down a 30-foot incline from the barn into the yard. After a few feet, the trail stops. Orville Gibson has disappeared without a trace. Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. I'm just glad it wasn't Orville Reidenbacher. I need his popcorn. Mm-hmm. I think the only name I can think of when I hear that word Orville, mm-hmm. that and that show, which. Oh, yeah. I've never seen the show, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, but definitely popcorn all the way. So word of Orville Gibson's disappearance spreads like wildfire among the residents of Newberry because it's a pretty small town and yeah. everybody's in everybody's business. And because it's this topic of discussion. And what year did you say this was? 1957. Okay. A New Year's Eve is when he disappeared. Yeah. Everyone starts to develop their own theory about what happened. Some folks say the quiet farmer had killed himself. Others say that maybe somebody had kidnapped him for ransom since he ran one of the most prosperous dairy farms in the area. But most people knew that Orville Gibson wasn't well-liked by most of the town residents and that he could have fallen victim to a fed-up enemy. Oh, crap. Okay, so he's, he's made some enemies. He has made some enemies. Uh, and I'll get into that a little bit later. I don't know. Later. He just seemed like this nice little farmer doing his stuff, minding his own farm. business. Milk like his cows. Yeah. I'm surprised. You shocked me. <gasps> so Orville Gibson had moved to Newberry with his family when he was a small child. By all accounts, he was a very good student, and he actually ended up graduating as his high school class valedictorian. Oh, okay. Yeah. However, his classmates disliked his personality and his work habits. He didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he didn't swear. Uh, One of the articles I read said that he wasn't considered, quote, one of the boys. Oh, okay. He was definitely a nose to the grindstone, work hard, maybe have fun kind of person. Very type A, Mm -hmm. not really, Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, while his peers viewed him as a little stuck up and a bit of an outsider, this didn't really seem to bother Orville Gibson very much. He actually ended up marrying his high school sweetheart, Avalyn, and took a job as a salesman after graduation. Oh, okay. 
He saved his money in hopes of achieving his dream, which was to own a dairy farm. He had grown up on one, and he really wanted to make that his life's work. Okay, good. I was about to ask you, how is that someone's dream? I mean, it's not like it's a bad profession, but it's just like it's a lot of hard, hard work, getting up early, all stuff that I don't really like. So, um, <laughs> you know, true, I true, don't but understand. I, it definitely aligns with like Gibson's personality of being very like serious, very yeah. work hard, very quiet. Like I can definitely see that being a suitable profession for a guy like that. Yeah. And if he like, he grew up on a farm, you said, so that could, you know, it's what he knows. And you have to be pretty smart to run a successful farm too. Because you you do not just like the manual labor, but you have to manage your inventory and business. Yeah, it's still very much a business. Mm -hmm. Gibson saves his money. And then in 1949, a local dairy farm just south of Newberry was foreclosed on after being once very prosperous. Orville Gibson rose at dawn to be the first person in line at the courthouse to buy the foreclosed property. He used his entire life savings to buy the farm. Others in Newberry, including some very prominent residents, also had their sights on the farm because it was a good-sized farm. It was on a good piece of land. I think I know where this is going. Mm -hmm. When they arrived at the courthouse later that day and found out that the farm had been sold to Gibson, they were furious. A good number of folks in town were very resentful of Gibson for buying the farm. They perceived that he kind of swooped down and bought it. And a lot of people verbalized their wishes for his farm to go bust. Either I know this story or I've seen this happen before with some other crime. Well, this story actually did inspire two books, uh, two novels, and a couple of different films or TV series episodes. So Now, while the town may have hoped that... Gibson's farm would go bust. That wasn't the case. Since he was a hardworking guy, knew knew what he was doing, the Gibson farm became a successful dairy operation by 1957. Okay. And it turns out that Gibson was also a pretty good neighbor to the folks he lived near. While the people who lived in town may have disliked Gibson, who was quiet by nature, and he was, by all accounts, a very large, powerfully built man, the other farmers in the area that surrounded Newberry considered Gibson a generous, dependable neighbor who was always willing to lend a helping hand when needed. I found a couple anecdotes about how he would help his neighbors. Um, one of them was a man who was elderly, and Gibson would go to the elderly neighbor's house and help maintain their gardens. He planted a cornfield for a neighbor who ended up being hospitalized during planting season, and he donated a lot of his time to the local church, even going so far as to build tables for their local church suppers. Okay, so it seems like he's a decent guy. Yeah, and I think it's more of that, like, the people in town kind of disliked him because he was that, you know, quiet farmer Yeah, who didn't, like, socialize and was almost considered kind of uppity, I guess. Okay, that's me besides the uppity and farmer. <laughs> You're like, I let to sleep in. I'm just like, um, yeah, I'm not leaving my house. I'm just staying in, and I'm not talking to any of my neighbors. And <laughs> But I'll, I'll help you if you need help. Yeah, exactly. So by 9 a.m. on New Year's Eve 1957, the two troopers who responded to Ava Lynn's report of her husband's disappearance discussed the possible theories about Gibson's whereabouts. One of the troopers, a man named Lawrence Washburn, remembered stopping by the farm a few days earlier to serve Gibson a breach of peace summons for a fight he had with his hired man, Ari Martin. Oh. Mm-hmm. This is where it gets So this is like a farmhand that he... Yep. Okay. Ari Martin was this guy who had worked for Gibson for the past five years, and he actually lived on a tenant house on Gibson's land because the farm he had was about 300 acres. Okay. And it had a couple different houses on it. So he let uh, Ari Martin and his family live there as part of his payment for working on the Gibson farm. He also paid him, of course. Yeah. And by all accounts, before this altercation, they had a pretty good relationship. Gibson that year had actually given Martin a $25 bonus for the Christmas season. So well, that's nice of him. Doesn't seem to be an acrimonious relationship or anything like that. Now, according to Trooper Washburn, when he served Gibson the summons, Gibson was a little stunned, and he explained that Martin had actually showed up for work drunk that day. Uh, Gibson had told the man to go home and sleep it off. Instead, Martin ignores him and attempts to pick up this heavy wheelbarrow that was loaded with two 40-quart cans of milk. Oh, shit. And uh, the way that Martin is described, he's described in several places as like kind of a smaller, more slight man. He was also significantly older, like he yeah. is in his like 60s. So he lifts this huge wheelbarrow with you know these ginormous cans of milk in it, and he has his drunk muscles. And he can't support the weight. <laughs> and as he tries to move the wheelbarrow, it topples and it kind of falls sideways. And the handles like end up slamming into his ribs and the milk spills everywhere. Oh, God. Okay. That's what I thought was going to happen. Yeah. 
So, but there's no use crying over spilled milk. Oh, but Gibson was so angry over that spilled milk. <laughs> <laughs> so he angrily orders Martin to get the hell out of his barn and go home, and that they'll settle up over the spilt milk later. Now, Martin's super pissed off because he's drunk and enraged that the milk spilled, and he's even more angry that Gibson is going to be is going to dock him for spilling the milk. And he refuses to leave. Gibson again tells him, get the hell out of here. Martin refuses, and Gibson ends up physically ejecting him from the barn. Oh, okay. Yeah, the way it was described, he's basically like, he like grabs him by his collar and like hauls him out and like throws him out of the barn. Oh, shit. Now, Martin ends up kind of trailing home, his pride and his ribs very wounded. And he tells his son that Gibson had actually beaten him up. Later, when the police question him, uh, Martin says, well, no, no, my injuries were from a fall because he didn't want to talk about how he showed up at work drunk. Yeah. Now, this happened right before the Christmas holiday, um, that week in between. I think it was like right before Christmas. So like the 22nd, 23rd of December. And Gibson had been served the summons on Christmas Eve, I believe. And again, this being Newberry. This was like the talk of the town at all of the Christmas parties that year. Because you said it's very small, right? Mm-hmm. So Very small. Everybody's in everybody else's business. Yep. Only downside to living in a small town. Yep. Truthfully, truthfully. And I guess the Gibsons were noticeably, noticeably not invited to any holiday parties that year because of this. And the rumors around Newberry basically said that Gibson had beaten up the much smaller Martin quite badly. And some people said that, you know, he had actually put Martin in the hospital with broken ribs and a damaged kidney. Other folks said... But that was all bullshit, I'm assuming. It was. Yeah. It was. And other townsfolk were like, oh, Martin's lucky to be alive after, you know... I always knew that Gibson guy was secretly angry. He's so quiet. He must be... <laughs> oh, of course. He must be a bad egg. So a few town people suggest in the course of these, like, discussions at Christmas parties that Gibson should really be punished for, you know, flying off the handle and beating up a much smaller man. Uh, the Gibsons end up receiving several anonymous postcards threatening Orville over his altercation with Martin. Avalyn Gibson even reported that she received a phone call from an unnamed but very prominent man in town who threatened her husband. The caller told her, quote, tell your husband we heard about the Christmas party he gave Airy Martin. If he comes down to the village, we might be able to arrange a new Christmas party for him. Oh, shit. Oh, right. So the gauntlet has been thrown down. Indeed it has. Now, there's no real leads in Gibson's disappearance. All they have is that trail out of the barn. Yeah. So the police do a search in and around the area of Newberry, including trawling and dredging parts of the Connecticut River. And they are unable to find anything. Then in March of 1958, so almost three months later, the police discover Orville Gibson's body, still wearing the clothes he disappeared in, floating in the Connecticut River. His arms are tightly bound and cinched behind his thighs. Both of his legs are tied together tightly. He had been missing for a total of 85 days. 85 days? Mm -hmm. Holy crap. Okay, that's a long time. As the police investigation intensifies, this story, of course, gets picked up by the national and international press. Uh, They start calling it the Yankee lynching, and they kind of simplify the story into a tale about vigilante murder in a small town, you know, town folks taking matters into their own hands to punish a mean old outsider farmer. Of course. Um, at the time, too, a lot of people uh, compared it to Peyton Place. Like the okay, idea yeah. where it's like a small town with its dark secrets and there's something else going on here. I actually did want to read that book. Oh, Peyton Place is good. Um, I know my mom was like, oh, I loved it so much when I was younger and all this stuff. So The, the movie is also pretty good. Yeah. It's a little more cleaned up version of Peyton Place, the book, but... Yeah, I like. I heard the movie was good. Um, I saw part of it on TV one time. Yeah, solid, solid Lana Turner flick. Yeah, the other book that um, I asked her about and she had the same reaction to was uh, the Thornbirds. Oh, it was called the Thornbirds because I love um, the Mists of Avalon, but I have the audiobook, okay. and it's read by a woman named Davina Porter, and she has this really beautiful voice. She's a great narrator, so. Like, if you liked uh, this and would like more from the same narrator, 
look at the thorn birds. And I'm like, what the fuck is this about? All right, I'll ask my mom. And she's like, oh, it's so wonderful and romantic and blah, all this stuff. Like, you know, but I'm just like, all right, I don't think I'm going to be into that then. They made a really famous TV movie, but it was like set in Australia. It's like this sweeping epic. And then like, I I remember asking my mom about it too. And she's like, I don't know. It's kind of weird because he's a priest. I don't know. That's kind of weird. "Mm." She's like, but I mean, you could read the book if you wanted. (laughs) (laughs) But. I actually, because of my love of Davina Porter, ended up trying to um, read, well, listen to the Outlander series. Oh, yeah. The time traveling Scottish one. Yes. And I mean, I liked it for its historical, you know, stuff. I can't think of words today. So Setting, I guess. Yeah. But overall, it was just like, can they leave this room and stop having sex, please? Never. No. <laughs> so I just gave up on it. Women love men in kilts, apparently. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Where were you? I'm like, Yankee lynching. That's where we were. <laughs> so this gets picked up in the press. It brings a bunch of people to the little tiny town of Newberry. Now, the police still only have one lead. And that one lead turns out to be a local doctor who was driving by the Gibson farm early on the morning of December 30th, 1957. And the doctor said that he saw a two-tone sedan parked at the edge of the property about 100 yards from Gibson's milking barn. There were several men in and around the car. The doctor was actually able to spot one of his patients, a man named Ozzie Welch. Uh, the police interview Welch, who denies being near the Gibson farm on the morning of December 31st, but ended up changing his alibi story about five times throughout the course oh, nice. of their conversations. Yeah. Totally not suspicious. No, not at all. Uh, when police... Uh, so, okay. Police, like, basically have this one witness, this mm-hmm. doctor... And then the only physical evidence they could get from Orville Gibson's body, because it had basically been in the water the entire time he, he was missing, was the rope that was used to tie him. Okay. And I was reading a couple sources and they said, you know, in a farming community, you can identify certain aspects of where things come from because farmers do things differently. One of those was like this thing called sl- silge, where it's like what you use to make like feed. Yeah. And everybody has their own recipe, apparently. And then the other thing that they said that you can identify the farm is the rope because everybody has different vendors for rope. Sometimes you make your own rope, that sort of thing. So this piece of rope, they show it to Welch and he says, oh, exclaims, by God, fellas, that's my rope. (laughs) And then the police are like, really? Because that's what was used to tie up Orville Gibson. (laughs) And he kind of quickly clams up after that. So the police then follow up on the owner of the sedan, which they discover was a man also from Newberry named Frank Carpenter. So they begin questioning Carpenter and they really don't get anywhere. So they turn to the larger group of citizens in Newberry, hoping to generate more witnesses, more evidence against Welch and Carpenter. According to one source that I found, uh, the police went from house to house asking residents questions, basically like knocking on a door, being like, hi, do you know anything about the disappearance and blah, blah, blah. This kind of put their residents in a tense sort of position. Everyone started suspicious, started becoming suspicious of their neighbor. Of it course. Really, it really riled up the town. Police also ended up escorting upwards of 84 residents to Montpelier or Concord, New Hampshire to administer lie detector tests. Oh, okay. Because those are the only places in the state, in the, like the, Vermont the, and neighboring New Hampshire oh where they God. have them. <laughs> Wow. So the police do this, and they end up getting lots of information about the town, about who's sleeping with who, who's cheating on who, who doesn't have honest dealings in the community, but they don't turn up any new evidence about what happened to Orville Gibson. So basically, the police show up, and they're looking for leads, and they just like stir the shit pot in this little tiny town where everybody's in everybody else's business. That sounds fun. And then they attach a lot of detectors. All right. In neighboring states. Yes, in neighboring states. How terrifying is that? Yes. Although, to be fair, where uh, Newberry's located, it's like kind of right on the border of, okay. yeah. of New Hampshire. So it's not th- that crazy of a drive, but still. So finally, in no- on November 5th, 1958, police arrest Welch and Carpenter for Gibson's murder. Uh, their theory was that the pair of them, along with several unidentified accomplices, jump Gibson in his barn, tie him up with plans to dump him in the town square as like a revenge prank for beating up Ari Martin and remember this was New Year's Eve so they were going to leave him there like drop him off New Year's Day where everyone would be out and about celebrating and ha 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 ha. yeah now one important aspect that kind of triggered the events that 
followed was the way they tied up Gibson. They kind of tried to hogtie him, but they did it in a weird way where he basically had his arms pinned behind his back and tied behind his thighs, and then his legs tied together and tied to his arms. And apparently that actually ended up making his breathing very difficult. I could imagine that, yeah. And the theory was that the men didn't realize that while they were, you know, toting Gibson around in the trunk of the car that he was slowly suffocating to death. When they discovered this, they kind of panic, don't know what to do, and they end up dumping his body in the river. It's very know, jawbreaker. Yeah, I was, I, I, Liz Purr was in my head, actually. <laughs> very jawbreaker, yeah. So at trial, Welsh's defense attorneys offer an alternate theory that Gibson, angry with the townspeople of Newberry, who resented him and being embarrassed by his breach of peace summons, decided to take his own life. But to exact final revenge in the town, he decided to make it look like it was a murder. Uh, one of the attorneys, actually, who defended either Welsh or Carpenter, I'm not sure who, but this guy basically wrote several books about this. And he, like, toured up until, like, the 90s on these books that he wrote on this theory that Orville Gibson had, like, bound himself. And during his, like, you know, not book signings, but, like, you know, talks you give as an author. I don't know what those are called. Book mm-hmm. signings? And book signings are, like, book readings. readings. Yeah. yeah. He would demonstrate how it would be very easy for a person to hogtie themselves like that. I don't see how it would be easy to hogtie yeah, yourself. I, I, I really wanted to find like a picture of him like demonstrating it or like some footage. But this was like, you know, in the 90s before. Well, we should check out YouTube videos then of like how to hogtie yourself. How to hogtie yourself. How to fake your own kidnapping, you know. Yeah. So that I thought that was super interesting. A little tip at the lawyer's like, no, he, he did it himself. That is the dumbest defense that I've ever heard. Buy my book. Oh, my God. <laughs> so... The local doctor, again, is their eyewitness. He starts to, t- he testifies. However, his testimony starts to waver under cross-examination. He starts to say things like, oh, I don't recall. It was so long ago. And the, de- the defense kind of latches onto this and proceeds to ask the judge for a directed verdict from the bench. I didn't know what a directed verdict was, but essentially it's like you can ask a judge. I want you to rule on whether this is even like a f- case that should proceed to the jury. Okay, yeah. And it was surprisingly granted. And Welch was found not guilty of murder in October of 1959. Uh, Unfortunately, he died shortly after he was released from cancer. And that was another thing that townsfolk kind of talked about as like, that's a real shame. Like Welch was like the local like janitor custodian at the high school or the main school. So he knew a lot of people in town. And they're like, oh, it's all this nastiness with Gibson's murder and his accusations that, you know, just ate. I think one quote was like, it ate Welsh off from the inside. He died of that cancer. It was very Because, like, you know, this is how cancer is caused. Exactly. Exactly. It's not the fact that people smoke like chimneys in the 1950s. Oh my God, not no, at all. Well, back then it was good for your heart and lungs. Don't forget that. Asthma cure. Yep. Terrible. Perfect health product. Um, likewise, Frank Carpenter, who was the other guy that was arrested for Gibson's murder, his charges were also dismissed in April of 1960 along the same lines of that there is no real physical evidence and everything is hearsay based on a witness whose testimony is a bit shaky. Now, the case was never officially solved and it's still open. Uh, there's also a hefty reward that still stands for clues leading to its resolution. Um, but nothing, no new witnesses, no new information has come forth Basically, the 1970s was the last time there was any kind of fresh lead for the police to follow. And it was interesting. So the one fellow, uh, Washburn, the state trooper who initially uh, was called to Gibson's house, he pretty much followed that through most of his career. And any time a tip would come in on Gibson's murder, he would personally investigate it. And it was okay. kind of the, that one case in his career that he was always looking to solve. All right. So they never really solved it. It was just... Nope. Nobody knows what happened. I mean, I don't know. Because, you know, he hogtied himself and threw himself in a river. Possibly. Possibly. There, That's one one theory. I, I tend to think, I don't know. What do you think? Sorry I think he definitely I mean. didn't hogtie himself and throw himself <laughs> in the goddamn river. <laughs> throw himself in that goddamn river. How? Uh, I, I, that's just, I, I know, still. Can you imagine that freak, <laughs> the, 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 the cojones and that lawyer to argue that in court? Like, let me show you, Judge. Just wrapped here and you do a little slip knot there. And... Although... I really want to buy this book now. So, I mean, it is good marketing. I'll send you the link. Because it just sounds so absurd. 
that. Well, and I, and I think it's funny because that whole theory is like predicated on the idea that Orville Gibson was this like mean asshole farmer. And there's definitely police interviews of his direct neighbors outside of Newberry who say the complete opposite about him. And also his wife, you know, she is very much like if he was truly an asshole and he was dead, even if she loved him, she kind of, I feel like she would be like, oh, well, you know, or if he had his, actually his nickname was Hoot. 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 All right. He, you know, fly off the handle or something like that. But she didn't. Like, she was very much like, I don't understand why someone would do this to him. Yeah. And I mean, I think that, yeah, anyone would be like, you know, well, he had his enemies. He didn't, you know, he didn't really get along with people or something like that. You know, not this, you know, he was a great guy if all this stuff was true, that he was just this big asshole that no one liked. Exactly. I don't know. I kind of tend to think that it was like one of those things where like a rumor mill it's a rumor mill at the holidays where people are, you know, drinking a lot and taking off of work and they have lots of time on their hands. And I think it was just something where a bunch of guys who probably already had like a dislike of Gibson kind of fueled each other on him. Like, yeah, we're yeah. going to get him back. And I do think it was probably an, a poorly planned prank that went wrong. Well, also flashes of the Hex Hollow murders is like popping in my head. Just because of the whole, like, you know, well, we didn't really plan on killing him, but what do we do now? Now he's dead. Yeah, I think that's kind of what happened. But yeah, I thought it was a super interesting case. It's one of those interesting unsolved murders from, yeah, it's apparently one of those uh, things that pops up occasionally. Like I said, there was like two different books that inspired it. But, and there are a couple like, you know, movies, TV shows that they kind of use a similar thing where. A farmer was abducted and disappears. Well, I mean, how many real murders inspired episodes of Law and Order, you know? Every one, if you want to believe what Dick Wolf tells me at the beginning of the episode. I don't believe it's every... Inspired by true events. Yeah, I don't believe it's every one, but I've noticed a lot of similarities with stuff. Like, there was this one with um, Hilary Duff. Yes, there was this episode with Hilary Duff that was basically Casey Anthony. Oh, gross. Yeah. But kind of perfect. It It was nuts. Oh, I saw this thing the other day online. It was like, on a scale from this to this, how much do you love kids? Zero was Casey Anthony. Ouch. And 10 was Michael Jackson. Wow. Yeah. That's like a devil's choice right there. That's like, whoa. I mean, there's no right answer there. Everything is kind of like, ooh. I'm a solid um, five. Yeah. Solid five. (laughs) Uh, So my sources for this story about the murder of Orville Gibson where VPR news, VPR dot. I used that one too this week. Yeah, it's very handy. Like I'm, I'm happy that like NPR has a good you know news desk in Vermont. They is that what it. that is? I don't, yeah, I don't even know. It's like a, it's a, uh, like a state version of NPR. I use New England Today, the New York Times, of course. I'm getting every penny out of that subscription, girl. I almost texted you last night, being like, "Can I have your password for this?" But I didn't need it. So all right, well, I'm there for you if you need to do. Life Magazine, which is really cool because they had lots of pictures of the folks that were involved in the case. The Vermont State Police website, vsp.vermont.gov, they actually have a lovely database of all the larger unsolved cases in Vermont. And then the Vermont Encyclopedia, which is also a really cool resource I found on Google Books. It's basically an encyclopedia of famous people and places associated with Vermont. Oh, that sounds fun. And Orville Gibson was in there. I literally just got your text. Oh, sorry. Um, You're not getting anything from Starbucks now. I guess not. <laughs> um. All right, gang. Uh, I guess we will take a quick break and then return with Eden's paranormal Vermont story. Yes. I'm very excited. He told me he was excited to tell me. I am. Which in turn makes me very excited. So talk to you soon. All right, we're back, and um, we're having a bit of a catastrophe, but that's all right. Good thing he's cute. Yes. Cute as a button. Exactly. So if you hear some rolling noise, ignore it. He'll probably, you know, get over it soon enough. It's just Salem doing important kitten things. Exactly. He's got business to attend to. I'm really excited about this story this week. I didn't expect it to be as good as it was, so I'm happy that I found something that has, like, a lot of hauntings. Ooh. Um, if you remember our episode... From, was it Maryland? Yeah, it was Maryland. Hager House. Ah, yes. Where I called the episode a metric shit ton of ghosts. Mm -hmm. This is like a metric shit ton of ghosts part two. Oh, that's very exciting. a lot of stuff. 
This week's paranormal story takes place in Bennington, Vermont, which is in Bennington County and is actually one of two of its county seats. I've actually never heard of a county with more than one county seat, so that's kind of interesting. That is interesting. Actually, my college roommate grew up in Bennington. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. See, I don't know. It just reminds me a lot of Burlington, which is also in Vermont. So They're, they're kind of close. There's like the Bennington-Burlington, uh, the, the, uh, I think it's Manchester Triangle, and it's like a little like three town cities that are all pretty close in Vermont, and you know. Yeah. But Bennington's named after uh, Benning Wentworth. Oh, okay. Uh, colonial governor of Vermont. Yeah. But he had a bunch of uh, land grants and stuff that he gave to the settlers. And that's why certain things are named after him. Oh, that's cool. I didn't know that. I fell on a rabbit hole when it came to Vermont history. Oh, really? <laughs> I'm like, Benning? That's a really interesting first name. Click. And now you're just like, I know everything about Vermont. I know just enough to pretend I know everything about Vermont. Good enough. Uh, Bennington is also the largest town in southern Vermont and the third largest in the state by population. Uh, I will now take you to a recently defunct liberal arts college. This is the story of Southern Vermont College. Okay. The college itself was established in 1926 as St. Joseph Business School, which, because it was the 20s, with the stuff this school offered, I'd assume it was like a secretarial school for women because Wikipedia said it offered classes in secretarial accounting, finance, typewriting, and shorthand. So this seems like administrative assistant stuff, and yeah. I'm pretty sure that was strictly a woman's job back then. Yeah, maybe some like clerical work, but yeah. even then. Because I mean, like, I was a secretary for a short while, but that was like 2015, really? not, yeah, it oh. sucked. Because um, <laughs> I had two bosses, both of which hated me from the start. Oh, well, that so, doesn't sound pleasant at all. It was not fun at all. Actually, every day I went in like wanting to die because it was that bad. So, yeah. I would never, ever... I mean, I might work for someone who was better than that. Maybe. But this was just awful from the beginning. So, yeah. It just reminds me of 9 to 5. I'm like, live your best Dolly Parton secretary life. <gasps> oh, movie night. Yeah. It is scheduled. Okay, good. We'll watch it. In 1962, uh, this college became a junior college, which is the same thing as a community college. Uh, it just offers, like, um, associate's degrees. Gotcha. Its name changed to St. Joseph College at that time. It made another big change in 1974 when it moved to its current location, the grounds of the old Edward Hamlin Everett Estate. This is when the name changed to Southern Vermont College. It was also granted the ability to give bachelor-level degrees at that point. Okay, so progressing nicely as a higher learning institute. Yeah, and it's really cool because, I mean, like, they kept the, the estate, the mansion, on the property. Like, that was, it's one of their main buildings. Cool. Uh, so I think that's really interesting. Just this past year in 2019, for future listeners, the New England Commission of Higher Education placed the college on something called show cause status and made them provide more information about their finances. This didn't go so well, and the school officially shut down on May 31st, 2019. Mm, That's a bummer if you're currently a student there. Yeah, right? So, I mean, I looked up what show cause meant because I'd never heard of it. And it's a legal term meaning a court order where a person or company in question is ordered to provide proof or explanation of something. Okay. So basically, it's like hand over your records. I wonder what triggered it. I don't know. Hmm. But yeah, so they had no funding, so they shut down. The Everett Mansion, which I will delve into in a minute, was used as the college's primary admin and academic building. The library, theater, and academic support room called the Center for Teaching and Learning. Uh, The Bergdorf Gallery, which I'm assuming is a room with Ferdinand Bergdorf paintings, or from what I was able to find, some sort of art gallery named after him. It's got all that stuff in there. I don't know. It's kind of unclear what that room was since the college is now closed, so the world may never know. There's also eight classrooms in the building, as well as administrative offices. Did you find out like what the size of the school was student-wise before it shut down? Looked like it was pretty small. It sounds like it with eight classrooms. Yeah, well there's more classrooms than that, but that was just Oh, in, just the one building. In the one building. Gotcha. I'm pretty sure it said like at the end like that its student body was like 400. Oh, that's super tiny. So, yeah. So I think that was just like close to the end of its run. Yeah. Cuz there seemed to be a lot of former students from what I found on, you know, websites that I looked stuff up on. All right, cool. More fun facts, because I guess we're doing a lot of these now. 
The theater at the college was also the home to the Old Castle Theater Company from 1977 to 1994. Hmm. So that's pretty impressive. As far as the rest of the campus goes, it also has five residence halls. There was also a residence hall complex built in 2009, which could house 110 students. In this complex, there's also a science lab, computer labs, an atrium overlooking a pond, as well as some lovely views of the mountains. Uh, They also have a 24-hour computer lab on campus, a dining hall, and an athletic center. So they're pretty well, you know. Yeah, it sounds like your typical uh, well-equipped liberal arts college. Yeah. I thought you were playing footsies with me. It's the cat. (laughs) Surprise. Now I'm going to go into the original house, the Everett Mansion. So Edward Hamlin Everett was born May 18th, 1851. He was a philanthropist and businessman. He also founded the Bennington Museum. He gave like a million dollars to fund it and start it up. Cool. His stepfather was uh, inventor Henry J. Putnam, who invented a fence wire barbing machine, adjustable clothes ringer, and the lightning fruit jar, which was a predecessor to the mason jar. Oh. So he did a lot of cool stuff. Uh, As for his philanthropy, since I guess that runs in the family, even if they aren't blood related, uh, he donated a city waterworks system to Bennington. That's a pretty big like infrastructure That's thing to absolutely, yeah. donate. Edward himself got his start in business as a bottle salesman for his stepfather in Cleveland, Ohio. This business somehow ended up leading to the discovery of oil and natural gas in Ohio when in 1887 his workers struck natural gas and by 1906 Edward had 50 gas wells in the area and ended up drilling over 400 wells. Wow. Yeah. He also owned cattle and apple orchards, and he did real estate and so on. He had his fingers in a lot of pies. His apple orchard had over 70,000 trees and was once the largest single man orchard in the country. Wow. Apples. Yeah. Lots of apples. How do you like them apples? I love them. (laughs) So he was very much another overachiever as well with all this stuff he's doing. Uh, So there's a lot going on here. He um, also was one of the first manufacturer of automobiles. Hmm. Yeah. You're right. He does have his fingers in lots of pies. Yeah. He also got a lot of money from his stock in Anheuser-Busch. So, yeah, a beer fan, I guess. Now, Nicole, when you think of Corning, New York, what do you think of? Corning Glass. Exactly. So... Everett's Bottle Company, the American Bottle Company, all the good names are already taken, I guess. Uh, he ended up merging with Corning and became Owens Corning. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. So prior to the economic crash of 1929, Everett was worth between 40 to $50 million, which would have been between $602 million and $752 million today. Dang. So he got, got a lot of money. He married in 1886. His wife's name was Amy Webster King. She was, I guess, like a nurse or something, or maybe a doctor. I'm assuming back then there weren't many lady doctors. No. So it just said that she was active in hospital work. Candy stripper? Yeah, that's like all I really, like, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, she could have been a candy striper or janitorial staff for all I know. Like, there's... Well, she's a lady who has three names. One of those names is Webster. So I'm assuming she probably came from a certain social strata. And maybe I'm that assuming was like, so. You know, how it's like, oh, I'm, I'm like the ladies who are like, I don't have oh. my time to Well, whatever. if I read the next section of my notes that I wrote, all I really do know about her is she came from an aristocratic family and they probably met when he bought her family's glassworks factory. Yeah. So she is aristocratic. Yeah. She's like, I make cookies for the patients. Like, my God, cat. <laughs> <laughs> this is like the squirrel. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. You need to stop being crazy, little man. I feel bad for riling up now. I know, right? It's all your fault. You're like, let me <laughs> rile him up before we record. This should not have any ill consequence. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't remember if it was the first wife or the second wife that was the aristocrat. Oh, is a second wife coming? There's a second wife, yeah. I'm excited. Um, they both could have been aristocrats. Who knows? Or they could have been the Aristocats. <gasps> I love that movie. I haven't seen it in forever. I have Disney Plus now. I can watch it whenever I want. Mm. Um, this was the first big instance of his philanthropy that I found. He ended up donating his home in Newark, Ohio to the hospital, I guess, because of his wife. 
he also donated land to Newark Board of Education. Uh, so he was a pretty generous guy, you know. He remarried after the death of his first wife. Her name was Grace. I don't really know much about her, but uh, between both wives, they had five children, all of which were daughters. A lot of ladies. Yeah, that's a lot of ladies to deal with on a daily basis. Hope he had a lot of bathrooms. Yeah, right. He owned two houses other than that one. I'm not completely certain whether all of these were at the same time, but I'm going to assume they were. He had a house in Washington, D.C., which he lived at most of the time, and a summer home in Vermont, which will be the one we talk about the most because that's the one that's on the college campus. His second wife, Grace, used the summer house as her main home even after her husband's death before selling it in the 50s for only $65,000 to be used as a monastery. Interesting. The church actually ended up swapping properties with the college, and that's how Southern Vermont College was moved to that location. Another fun fact, his Washington, D.C. house was for a while the Turkish embassy and is now the residence of the ambassador of Turkey. That's a lot of Turkey. I thought Thanksgiving was over. Uh, (laughs) I actually know where that house is. Oh, really? Yeah. My brother used to live in Capitol Hill. Um and uh, there's a lot of different embassy houses there. And I remember him walking by and pointing out some of them. And they're very, they're very beautiful, old oh, I'm sure. uh, Victorian, like, I think they're two or three stories because nothing can be taller than the Capitol Oh, building. of course, yeah. yeah. Gorgeous. Does he work uh, in like a political thing or? No, not political, but he works, you know, he's a city planner, so. Oh, okay. Yeah, I never knew what your brothers did, so. No, nah, I mean, I don't know what they do half the time. <laughs> There's like that weird thing where it's like there's people in your life and you know they have a job. Yeah. And you know vaguely who they work for or what they do. And then when you're like, well, what exactly do you do? And it's like, I'm one of those people. I'm like, well, ah, uh, <laughs> it's really hard to explain it's, your job. Yeah, well, it's kind of technical, but not really. <laughs> it's just like ab fab. What is it that you do, mom? PR, darling. It's PR. I PR things. But what exactly does that <laughs> entail? Um. Okay. Fun fact number three. Oh my God, so much fun. I know, so much fun all the time. I lied earlier, and he also owned the, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, it's A-I-L-E, Ailey Castle in Switzerland. Uh, okay. Yeah, he also owns that wherever, I mean, I know where it is in Switzerland, but whatever that is. Sounds like, I'm just picturing like an Alpine castle somewhere. I'm kind of imagining, even though I know this is in Austria or Germany or something, uh, but I'm imagining that Sleeping Beauty castle. Neuschwanstein? Yeah, if you want to try to pronounce it, sure. Yeah, Neuschwanstein. Yeah, the it's really in, pretty one. It's that's in Bavaria. actually not finished on the inside. Nope. Yeah. Kept building. Yeah. I remember reading up on that like crazy when I saw how beautiful it was. Everett died on April 26, 1929 in Massachusetts General and was buried in his mausoleum in Park Lawn Cemetery in Bennington. I looked into this uh, to find his cause of death, but I could not find anything. Mm. So who knows? There's also a rumor about his daughters. Grace was a lot younger than Edward. And rumor has it that his three daughters from his first marriage didn't like her much at all. And that there was this big deal with his will when he left nearly everything to Grace instead of them. This actually became the most talked about court battle in the state and was called the Battle of the Bennington Millions. Mm. Grace was apparently grilled in the courtroom for three days. And Joseph Citro, who is, according to my source, Vermont's most esteemed Gothic author, end quote, he wrote about this trial saying it, quote, left the magnificent glass and bottle baron of the American Industrial Revolution looking like a pitiable weakling, utterly dominated by his Lady Macbeth of a wife. Wow. That's some strong words. Yeah. The daughters won their case, and they each got close to a third of the fortune, and the rest just went to Grace and her two children with Everett. So I feel bad for the two daughters that, you know, they had together. I mean, I guess my question would be, I wonder how old the two younger daughters were when this was happening, because maybe that's why he was like, all right, ladies, you're you're set, you know, for lo- yeah, you're married off or because his two oldest daughters had already married and moved out of the house. Now, let's get more into this house before I move on to the hauntings. The mansion has 27 rooms, so it's quite large. Mm hmm. It was built somewhere between 1910 and 1914, according to my sources. One said 1910, and then another said like 1910, but then everything else I saw said it was built between 1911 and 1914. 
Okay. So, yeah. Uh, this was done in a combination of the Beaux Arts style and Norman Revival. It's actually a really beautiful house. Um, it's gorgeous. I'll show you pictures of it later and we'll probably put some on the website, but it's beautiful. Cool. Um, the roof is red terracotta from Italy and the outside is made of limestone, which was actually quarried on the property. Uh, the building kind of sucks for the weather in Vermont though, (laughs) as stated by David Evans, who was the college president. He said that the terracotta roof had this awful freeze thaw cycle oh god that's yeah. true because it's like terracotta, it's terracotta is very like it's, it's gonna made, break yeah and yeah. it's kind of made for a warmer climate yes that's why it's always on like the you know the spanish revival mm-hmm. and stuff like mm-hmm. that so also all the windows only were single paned <gasps> and there was no ac well i mean was there air conditioning back in the you know 1910s mm, probably not Maybe not. I thought that was the time period where you had like things like the transoms over doors and stuff so you could pop it open and get your Yeah, there are, where are the transoms? I know because yeah. I learned that from uh, the Secret Circle books. I learned what a transom was because this part where she's like, and you'll notice the transom over the door. And then the main character is just like, what is a transom? Like she's just talking about something called a transom. I don't know what this is. Oh. Yeah. Inside the house, uh, you will find, and this is still in the house, black marble uh, that was also local. Uh, lots of sterling silver fittings and a silver chandelier and also tapestry wallpaper. Uh, the living room has barrel vaulted ceilings as well. Cool. I love barrel vaulted ceilings. They it's just beautiful. Such a cool like effect. Yeah. The garden is really beautiful outside. And like I mentioned before, there are some amazing views of the mountains and downtown Bennington. Since this is a stately mansion, it also featured a carriage house. Of course. Because, I mean, come on, I'm not buying it if it doesn't have a carriage house. Everyone needs a garage. Exactly. One crazy thing there is this outdoor sconce that looks like a lady's arm holding a torch, which has been described as something out of the Adams family. Is that the carriage house? I think it's just on the house. It's like the back of the house. Oh, that's cool. I want to see a picture of that. Yeah, I know. I wish I could have seen one, too. I'm sure it's out there. The house was also modeled after his home in Washington, D.C., and cost an estimated $2 million to build. Before the college, the area that is now the theater was a dance floor. So I guess they had a lot of parties at the house. There were servants' quarters on the third floor, as well as an attic space and a playroom for the kids. That's cool. There were barns on the property at one point, too, but those were torn down in 1985. So now for some ghostly happenings. Yeah. There's apparently a lot of shenanigans these ghosts get up to and another metric shit ton of ghosts. I'm so excited about this. According to one website, they joked that with all the reports, the ghosts would have to be tripping over each other. (laughs) Before I get to that, though, I want to talk about a bit of a legend. People say that Everett's first wife, Amy, had some sort of freak accident shortly after the house was built and died there. No one really stated what this freak accident was supposed to be, but there's other rumors that it wasn't an accident at all. Some people claim that she committed suicide, and some say that it was also murder, but suicide's the main one. Okay. So some claim that she committed suicide because she found out that her husband was having an affair with another woman, while others say that she was just, you know, plain old murdered in the house. By The other woman, maybe? I don't (gasps) know. Um, And I'll get to the other woman later on. According to the records, though, she died in the D.C. house and had been ill for a while and died after surgery. Oh, so that's kind of like the rumors around like um, the Devil's Tower. That's what I thought of when I was doing this, too. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, So there's that. This was in 1917 and it was 1920 when he remarried. Uh, So it wasn't Grace that he was having the affair with. Most likely. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, So Amy is said to haunt the house uh, due to this tale. So who really knows about that one? She still may haunt the house even though she didn't die there, or it could be a different spirit altogether. But she's said to appear in the house and on the grounds just wandering around as a lady in white. That's not creepy at all. No. According to like the lore on ladies in white, they're usually women who have been cheated on and then commit suicide, so it kind of works for that legend. Yeah, true enough. Security at the college said that they noticed doorknobs turn on their own as well as doors opening and closing by themselves. Ugh, that's gonna be like such an awful gig to be a security guard. Yeah, there. To be yeah. a security guard. Oh there. no, they fuck with the security guards a lot. Apparently, there was this one time when a security guard heard some strange noises coming from somewhere, and they finally tracked it to this one office, which was empty. It was locked from the outside. 
and there was like no way in or out of this room other than that door. Mm. Uh, and when they went to open the door and see what was going on, the door had somehow become barricaded with a desk that was in the room. <gasps> nope. Nothing was missing or anything. So it's not like someone like broke in through the window or anything like Mm-mm. that. In the carriage house, the doors and windows lock and unlock themselves, and the computers there also flicker on and off by themselves. Uh, Always save your work, kids. Exactly. There's also a double suicide on the neighboring property in 1956, and it was a husband and wife named Clemens and Hilda Lundoff. They were found in their car in the garage and died of carbon monoxide poisoning. That's sad. There's also been some reports of dark-hooded figures seen around the campus at night or possibly a monk spirit of some sort, which could be from its time as a monastery. There's apparently been reports of the black-hooded figures in other parts of the co- uh, the county as well. So who the hell knows what's going on in Bennington? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that's like not just the college thing. That's like all around town. I'm going to send a text message later about this. Oh, uh, really? Do you know someone who lives over there? No, but I, I maybe make college roommate who i'm still friends with oh, okay she grew up there so i can be like yo have you ever seen yeah any black hood figures exactly in 1962 an author named hal crother wrote about the experience that he had on the property while attending williams college he says that he and his roommate met some girls one night in bennington these girls invited them to go somewhere with them then blindfolded them and led them into the woods what yeah this is not a sexy fun time when no, that happens. No, it's really not. When the blindfolds were removed, they were near a pond by a stone wall, and there were these women in dark robes around them. He says that they were chanting something in some unknown language that was definitely not Latin because he studied Latin, so he would know. Mm-mm. He then says one of the women went up on the stone wall, disrobed, and jumped into the pond and never resurfaced. Then he says that he later saw her alive in Bennington, so she wasn't dead. What? Yeah, she just disappeared somewhere. and Yeah. It never says how they got out of it that I could find. Were they drinking that night? Probably. But that's just weird. Yeah. The first time that person you have just met is like, hey, I have a fun game. Wear this blindfold. Yeah, don't do that. That's like the biggest nope in the world. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of like when it's like, you know. Unless I see a poster of a donkey in the corner. Yeah. Then maybe. It's kind of like, your phone company will never ask you for your passwords. Do not give that out if you get a call saying so. It's like, yeah, a normal person will not ask you to blindfold yourself the first time they meet you. So (laughs) unless it's like some hookup online. I do this with all of my new friends. Now put the blindfold on. We're going to go somewhere. I'm not going to tell you where. And then I'm going to get naked and jump in a pond. Yeah. It'll be a sexy fun time. And never come back. Okay. Another fun fact. This place is actually an inspiration for Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House along with the Bennington College. I knew about the Bennington College part about that inspiration, but I didn't know the mansion. That's cool. Yeah. um, I think it was this mansion for the book as well, but it also could have just been for the Netflix series. It was a little unclear. Well, I mean, she like, I'm pretty sure she spent time up there. She like worked at Bennington College Mm -hmm. or University College, I think. Yeah. I know. She's a great writer. I've I've been reading some of her books. Yeah. I like her stuff. There's also been students who commented on some of the pages that I got information from that agree the place is very very haunted one mentioned their stereo turning on and off on its own as well as the volume going up and down they also said they heard children laughing in the abbey room oh no yeah i don't like that at all i don't really know what room the abbey room is but that's what happened like laughing children disembodied laughing children is such creepy so creepy so you know that one um it's a kate bush song and it's just like a child laughing i want to say it's like her Ariel album. Okay, I don't have that one. It's like one of those songs I forget it's on the album, and every time I'm listening it to it, you out. yeah, because I'll be like cleaning my house, and I'll be like, oh, I love this song, and all of a sudden I hear, ha, 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 ha. I'm like, what is that? The only one I have is Terrifying. Hounds of Love. Terrifying. That's the only album that I have by her is Hounds of Love. Oh. I need more. I know. I do love. I got love you. me some Kate Bush. People have gotten orbs on the pictures that they take there as well, which hmm. is you know pretty common. Um, another student said that she was in the bathroom shower and heard a girl singing ring around the Rosie. And when she got out of the shower, there was no one else there with her. Oh my God. I know. Oh, like not only is that a, the, probably the creepiest childhood. Because it's about the freaking bubonic plague. Yes. Yeah. Oh, 
That is that is some straight up horror movie shit. I told someone recently, I forget who I was talking to, but I was like, oh yeah, Ring Around the Rosie. You know what that was about? And then I told them, yeah, bubonic plague. Like buddies. <laughs> and then she's like, no, that can't be written. Like, Ring Around the Rosie, the healthy people, pocket full of posy, because that was supposed to be to like... Ward off the evil miasma. Yes, exactly. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down because they get burned. Because you got to burn the plague victims. Yep. So, yeah, some people don't know that. But now you do. You're welcome. I love ruining your childhood. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was definitely like one of the creepiest things no, that I read on here was the ring so around creepy. the rosy. Oh, no. Mm-mm. Although I know what I'm going to do next. I'm going to prank somebody. Huh? I'm just going to creepily sing ring around the rosy. <laughs> do it. <laughs> people have seen shadowy figures in their dorms as well. Someone said that they had this alarm clock that didn't work, but would somehow go off late at night, which was followed by the sound of someone laughing. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, And these are all like this was all from the comments section of a page that I was reading, too. So this is people who were ex-students that just wrote in the comments their experiences. Um, So that's pretty crazy. People lived in the third floor loft room as their dorm or suite. I guess it was more of a suite since they had a downstairs living space as Mm -hmm. well. They've heard weird dragging noises coming from down in the living room area when no one else was there. And they'd go down and there was nothing. Also, sometimes their window that was down there would open up, even if it was locked, and it would just fly right open. Mm. Uh, And several of the posters mentioned that. Windows flying open? That In that particular room, that and the dragging sound. Creepy. So you don't know what that's all about, but it sounds pretty scary. In the comments section on the one website that I visited, I heard this crazy rumor that might not be so crazy. They said that there's a satanic cult up there in the mountains and that Grace was a part of it. Hmm. Yeah. I also saw people talking about the grounds and how there are altars in some of the more remote parts and that there's a statue or fountain of a beautiful woman with a gargoyle head on the back. So you never know what was actually going on. Yeah, that's... mm, It's a little weird. I don't like that. As I continued to read the comments on the one website, there was just more and more from students seeing shadowy figures in their rooms and people in robes. So that's really creepy. Someone said while they were attending the school that they witnessed one of the security guards just run away in fear one night and never come back. (laughs) He's like, I'm out. Bye. I don't blame him. I do not blame him at all. One student said they found a weird series of tunnels under a set of outside stairs. So that's not creepy. And Wait, a tunnel? A like, tunnel, like, like an underground tunnel like, under like the house or something. Oh, yeah. I don't like that. I don't like the Like it was like a series of tunnels. That's um, how they get in and out. Yeah. It's I don't like that. Creepy. I understand um, why this was like an inspiration for a freaking house. Off r- exactly. Yeah. Off Hill House. Um, this one commenter said that she saw a man in her room from time to time and that he made her feel very unsafe and he would lurk by their bathroom. What the fuck? Yeah. She also said that their stuff would go missing and she thinks that was the ghost of this little girl. And she said that she also saw the ghost of a Victorian looking woman walking around. That's, I would. Mm, no, I could not do with like, oh, it's getting up to use the bathroom. I'm like, who's that dude? Yeah, no. right unacceptable just some old pervs mom and dad you. can you please get me an apartment off campus yeah right <laughs> the campus is so beautiful though i'd still want to stay there even with all the ghosts it's it's amazing so all that weird shit happened and then someone said that there'd sometimes be like this mist that would be like above their bed that was someone else saying that oh uh, out of all the comments I read from people who visited or lived there, there was only one person who was there in the 70s when it was owned by the church who said that they never saw anything. Hmm. Every other comment besides his had seen not one but multiple things. Interesting. So I don't know why he, it was fine in the 70s and now it's not, but who knows? Maybe it's when that cult moved in. <laughs> Some people have reported seeing things like uh, smoke filling the hallways. There's also supposed to be a maid who hanged herself in the Abbey room. And according to an episode of Ghost Hunters that I watched, this is who Edward Everett was said to be having the affair with. Ah. Yeah. So I found that out later. She's supposed to be like a maid or something um, or the babysitter possibly. Like the nanny. Yeah. And then she was having an affair with him and then hung herself, I guess, maybe after after the supposed suicide, I think is how it was supposed to go. I don't know. Uh, but there was you know, lots of fun stuff about that in there the sound of babies crying can be heard from the room that used to be the nursery 
also in the Ghost Adventures episode, the one student or faculty member, I think she was a student, uh, I don't remember which, she said in the Abbey, you can hear a lot of disembodied voices talking and that it's men's voices on one side and women's voices on the other. Weird. Yeah. The TAPS crew also caught this woman walking in the hallway on a thermal camera and she walked from one closed locked door and through another one on the opposite side. I would like to watch that portion. It was actually pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, very creepy, of course. Sadly, I was only able to watch about 10 minutes or with commercials on dailymotion.com. It was around 20 minutes. <laughs> uh, but I only got to watch 10 minutes of the episode before it cut off right when one of the crew said, what was that? Are you kidding me? Then it just, yep. Yeah, then it was done. And it started to loop back to the beginning of the episode. Ugh, yeah. I hate that. So now I'll never know what they found and it's pissing me off. I bet it was a shaky camera. Probably. That's what it always is. <laughs> or a weird unexplained sound and then nothing. Yeah. I'm After, sorry. Was that too cynical? No, that was pretty pretty on, on point there. After hearing all of this, I kind of wish that this college was still up and running because I would drop everything and go back to school there. <laughs> I've always wanted to go to Vermont anyway, so that works for me. I'd probably run away in terror after a few months, but, you know, why not? You only live once. YOLO. YOLO. Ugh. Now I hate myself for saying YOLO. <laughs> Honestly, in my research, uh, when I was trying to find a story, I noticed there's a lot of supernatural occurrences in and around Bennington. So there might actually be something to all the claims of that cult. Because there seems to be a lot of activity in Bennington. Yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another haunted college in... Um, the Bennington College is also haunted. And I think there was other ones. I forget. There's a bunch of stuff in Bennington, though, especially when you get up into the mountains. It gets real weird. Uh, All in all, I now think that if I were to only investigate one place in my lifetime, I'd want it to be this place. So just just the college or all of Bennington? Oh, maybe all of Bennington. Have you heard about the Bennington Triangle? Did you come across it? No. Oh, so I looked into this because my friend from Bennington recommended it. Um, there's another freaking triangle. Yeah, th- apparently that's a that's a thing in New England. There's lots of triangles, but the Bennington Triangle. Why not a nice rhombus? Because <laughs> that's not a spooky. <laughs> it's this like triangle where a bunch of folks uh, disappeared in like the late 40s, early 50s. Like they disappear while they were hiking. Oh. And they they've never been found, and they have a list of all these like disappearances and. Um, I guess the triangle is centered around the Glastonbury Mountains. Okay. And it's basically uh, the area surrounding Bennington, Woodford, Shaftesbury, and Somerset. Um, And it's just some of the area includes like ghost towns that were basically unincorporated. Okay. I did come across some ghost towns. Yeah. I was like, sounded pretty cool. But but I decided on this instead. It was interesting. And I was like, all right. I think. an episode of Lore, that podcast, if you mm-hmm. ever listen to it, it's very, it's very good. But Aaron Mankey, um, they did a they did a really lovely episode about the Bennington Triangle events yeah. in the late forties and early fifties, and kind of covered all the the missing folks who were basically never seen again. And it's just like a weird a weird little nugget of similar. Yeah, that's crazy. Perhaps true crime, perhaps paranormal. Who can say? Yeah, because I mean, we just got done like talking about the Bridgewater Triangle mm-hmm. when we were in Massachusetts. So. Yeah, and it does. Uh, Joseph Citro, as I think, is one of the sources that you found for yeah. your story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he talks about how the two areas are very similar. Yeah, and they have like a lot of same characteristics, a lot of same happenings, and a lot of the same history. I'm like, that's spooky. That's nuts. Yeah, but I didn't hear about a cult being in the Bridgewater. Oh yeah, I guess I did. There is that cult. Yeah, in the Bridgewater Triangle, hmm. New England. Yeah, New England's got a lot of cults and triangles and triangle cults. <sighs> I wonder if there's any other triangles we'll come across in our journey. Maybe. But I really feel like this college would be like a great time. Like, Oh, yeah, for, for sure. Ghost hunting because there's just so much activity there and it's verified by so many people at the school. If anyone has any connections to the college and get me in there, you know, let me know. Um, I will assemble a team quite similar to the Avengers. <laughs> I get to be Thor. And we will investigate the shit out of that place. 
So, Nicole, I know you probably wouldn't want to go, but you're more than welcome, of course. I mean, I'd drive the van. You'd drive the van. And I'd be that person outside monitoring. You'd, I would go on the pizza second run. spooky stuff happens, you would like just drive away without us all? No, I would wait with the engine idling. Okay, well, that's good. I mean, and I know how to do a head count, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> For my sources this week, I used Wikipedia, vermonthumanities.com, findagrave.com, vpr.org, everettmansion.yolasite.com, mysterioushills.blogspot.com, theshadowlands.net, and the Ghost Hunters episode, Dark Learning, or at least 10 minutes of it, like I said. <laughs> I like that story yeah, quite a bit. I thought this was a lot of fun just because it was so crazy. Like, as I was reading those comments, I was like, no shit, come on, let me write this down <laughs> now, too. And that's what took me so damn long to do these notes. Fair enough, fair enough. But yeah, I really enjoyed both of our stories today. I thought it was fun. Yeah, me too. So Roadsters, if you enjoyed our stories as well, or you'd like to get in contact with Eden and I, or you have something to say or suggestions or, you know, whatevs. Criticisms. You can tell us that you hate us and that we suck. It's fine. I have a thickish skin, sort of, sometimes. Sometimes. I've been exfoliating, so who I knows? I mean, I've worked retail, so I'm, I can handle anything. <laughs> Mr. Sir, can I speak to your old manager? <laughs> Uh, you can email us at roadsidehorrorshow at gmail.com. Also, please, you know, subscribe uh, or give us a review because that's always important. It helps us with visibility so more people can find us. Uh, we'd also like to thank Yox Rocks Designs for our amazing logo and E. Massey for our intro and outro songs. As always, you can find us on social media, on Facebook and Instagram at Roadside Horror Show or on Twitter at Roadside Horror. And I guess until next week, gang. Creep on, creeping on. Creepin on. on.